the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see you bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Hello and welcome to All We Hear is Purple, the third or fourth most mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. I'm Andrew Berg and joining me tonight is Coach B. I almost used your last initial as my last name, which are the same initials, but Coach, how's it going tonight? What is up? It's good to be back in the pod after a brief stint away. Yeah, Gave I think... back and one of these days point... we got to all get together. Yeah. At some point, it will happen that we're all available, but it, it just it hasn't happened yet. Uh, once again, Gaby is busy this week. This time, she's functioning as Herschel Walker's bag woman to try to keep his family quiet until after the election because they keep telling things about Herschel Walker that are making things so unpleasant for him. Uh, let's talk about UCLA. We were just before we started, we were uh, talking to our producer, Colin, who is in Los Angeles for the game. Probably could have been a more fun game, but still sounds like a great experience. Uh, always fun to go to the Rose Bowl. Maybe not so much for the Huskies. Before we talk about the X's and O's of the game, I want to talk a little bit about some of the off-field stuff that seems to always have an impact. You know, Huskies, I think the stat is they've won uh, like one game at in the Rose Bowl uh, against UCLA in the last 20-some years. Uh, you know, it's the first road game of the year. Does that really matter? They're playing on grass. Does that really matter? Does playing UCLA specifically on the road really matter? Is it, what do you, how do you kind of attribute the blame for something like this where the team just kind of comes out flat? Yeah, it's always kind of tough. Um, road games in general, uh, you know, I didn't play in college or anything like that. I really only was involved in high school level football. But um, even then, when you're just driving across town, that can, kind of throw off your usual routine that you kind of get used to, especially when you're like UW where you have the first month of the season at home, right? So everybody's very much in their regular routine and kind of have their, you know, internal body clocks or schedule or something. And then add on to that, that, you know, not just the travel down to LA, which kind of throws a wrench in that, but also that, School started recently, right? I believe last week was the first full week of school or something along those lines. Yeah, Actually, I think that's right. Yeah, within the last something two like weeks. That. For, yeah. First week of school or whatever it is. And that kind of throws off their, their daily routines. And, you know, it, it can just be kind of tough to really focus in as much as uh, they had to this point. So I'm sure, I'm sure it was a factor in all of that. And uh, I know playing on grass – versus turf kind of has some injury connection there but you know big picture I don't think it's that big of a deal as far as like the actual performance or anything like that overall I mean it's in you know every season they're going to have to play on grass at some point and turf at some point so I think a lot of those uh, players uh, kind of already know how to handle things whether it be switching out cleats things like that, you know, it's, uh, you just deal with it, you know, as it comes and everybody has to deal with it. So, you know, maybe not that big of a deal, but just the overall change of scenery, having to get on a flight down to LA and all that sort of stuff while juggling school now, it's, uh, that's probably 
a pretty significant factor. Yeah, I, I, it's it's kind of a, a hodgepodge. I get the travel element. I get the not sleeping in your own bed, adhering to your own routine, eating the foods you're familiar with, whatever. Even just the, the effect of being on an airplane. It's not, you know, like they're flying to another continent, but anytime that you have to travel, it does kind of have an effect on you for a day or two. Uh, I, I get all of that. I accept that. The, the grass versus turf thing is so strange to me. And it seems like the record kind of bears it out that there is a difference for the Huskies year over year. It's not reliant on one coach. It's not reliant on a single quarterback or anything like that. They just play differently. Even if you only look at road games, they play better on turf than they do on grass. And it's very bizarre. Uh, it, it, it showed up in a few different ways in this game, whether it was fatigue or, or you know, defensive, better defense coming against them. But uh, Michael Penix made more mistakes in this game than he had up to the to this point in the season. He was sacked twice, his first two sacks of the year. He threw two interceptions, which were both seemingly trying to squeeze the ball in too tight of a window. Uh, do you think that had more to do with trying to do too much in a high-scoring game where it was clear pretty early on that there was going to be a lot of reliance on the offense? Or do you think UCLA's defense deserves more of the credit for, you know, disguising coverages and actually making things a little more difficult for Penix than what he'd largely seen in other games this year. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I kind of, as I was watching it live, noticed a couple of different things kind of pop up. I think you make a great point that it felt like he was really pushing a little too much, trying to do a little too much and not play within the system, which is something that uh, up until this point, we felt like, you know, was kind of his forte. He, he he himself is a playmaker, but it's within the structure of the overall offense up until this past week where he was distributing the ball to all different receivers, taking what was given to him, you know. You know, he might have some uh, inconsistencies here and there, but by and large, he was just excellent at running grubbed offense. And... You know, part of that, I think, was his familiarity and all of that and, and you know, the lack of pressure up until this point. Um, you know, you mentioned he had his first two sacks this season, and uh, I did get a sense that UCLA's front four really got to him or at least gave him – affected him more than um, our first four opponents, uh, and that was a challenge, but – the, the one thing that you didn't mention that kind of stood out to me was how out of sync the overall offense felt right from the very beginning, um, taking that really early timeout just mm-hmm. to get things sorted out. There was a lot of holding uh, penalties, a lot of uh, penalties in general, really. And, you know, maybe later on we can talk about, you know, how the officiating went. But, I mean, that it's it's hard to deny the fact that it just felt like we were always pushing up against, you know, zeros on the play clock um, and kind of just late audibles, late adjustments. Um, and, and it just didn't feel like Penix ever got comfortable, whether it's in the huddle, at the line of scrimmage, after the snap, whatever. It just, something was off and, you know, uh, it, it could have been the road environment. It could have been, you know, the travel still affecting him and the rest of the team or whatever it is. It just never felt like we got in sync until, you know, later in the game when it was uh, a pretty big deficit to overcome. So, I mean, 
hopefully we get this sorted out as we move forward and Penix uh, and the rest of the team kind of figures out their, you know, what they got to do to be more effective on the road. But, you know, that was, that was something that really hadn't been a factor early in the season. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And I think you're probably right that those are the types of things that could show up more away from home. And it was, although Michigan State's defensive line was got a lot of credit before we played them, uh, this was the best defensive line performance we've seen. And they, de- they did more exotic looks on the line, bringing pressure from different angles, uh, using stunts. And it, it looked a little more confusing for Penix. And I would imagine that had an impact on his comfort level in the, uh, you know, identifying coverages, identifying blitz pickups and kind of added up as the game went on. And it was a problem early. And then as they, you know, there's a big enough lead, UCLA wasn't doing anything as exotic later in the game. And that's when he settled into more of a groove. Uh, And frankly, the crowd was less into it at that point too. So it was probably easier to make that pseudo comeback. Although, it was probably a comeback in the same sense that like Michigan state made a comeback against us where it was never really in any jeopardy. Um, and it would have taken a miracle for it to amount to anything. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the refereeing. Uh, I, I know that, you know, reading through some of the discussion online, this has been, a, you know, very big talking point for a lot of Husky fans. My point of view was that I'm not sure there were a lot of calls that really would have had a risk of swinging the game. The one, uh, very dubious holding penalty on Rosengarten in the first half that eventually led to an interception being the exception. Like that was the one that felt to me like it had a really big impact for the most part. It seemed like most of the other calls, even when they were questionable, I'm not sure how big the impact was. I I noticed I saw Christian Capel went to a very thorough breakdown of the stacked up defensive holding and, um, a personal foul penalty that happened later in the game and determined that they, they, if they were wrong, they were wrong by a difference of like net seven yards. And that was a point in the game when our defense was offering no resistance whatsoever. Uh, it kind of a, you make your own luck kind of thing. Like the, and the same thing with the flop on the personal foul. I thought it did not have any illusions that our defense was about to uh, cause a turnover on that possession either. I don't know. Do you have a different point of view on that? I, I, didn't agree with a lot of the calls, but I also didn't get the impression that they had a huge impact on the outcome of the game. No, I had a very similar uh, stance on how everything kind of played out. It was, it was frustrating to see, but you know, deep down I knew, yeah, this, it didn't have a a substantial enough impact overall for me to really get worked up about it. You know, at least in the moment, I kind of realized that, Um, you know, penalties add up and and you know maybe if there were like five penalties at key moments maybe the cumulative effect might have had a difference of a couple points but it was still such a dominant performance by UCLA that you know it's it's tough for me to say that that was what really swung the game in their favor I mean I I took the approach more that it was you know, a byproduct of a number of other things that we didn't do that kind of led to those penalties. You know, up until this point, we've been playing pretty clean games uh, until UCLA. And, you know, I think that some of these issues come about, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, pre-snap procedural penalties or near penalties that kind of caught up to us, 
kind of feeling like we're out of sync. And so not everybody's on the same page, which might lead to individuals trying to play outside the system and try to be heroes as well as a greater degree of talent than what we've faced so far. I mean, Michigan state, like you said, they had a pretty good, you know, fairly talented defense with guys like Winman that we faced off earlier. Um, you know, he had the stats to show that, you know, he was a, a productive player, but I think folks like the Murphy twins or Leatu Latu, um, you know, they have much more, they were probably more talented than anybody else we faced. And that's why we saw some of the holding penalties against Rosengarden and, you know, a number of other things that kind of led to the result that we got to rather than really the, the officials giving away the game. Yeah. And the, Devon Banks late hit out of bounds that happened after the guy had taken seven steps out of bounds is still only a 15 yard personal foul and felt like that one was worth about four flags on its own. It's just how how late it really was. Uh, so <laughs> maybe in that case, the rules didn't hurt us so much. Well, we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of things around the fringes of this game, but the real concern here and where this game was lost was in the secondary, our defensive secondary, the coverage and the tackling were both, way below a standard that would give us a chance to win. I, I We've said some nice things at various points this year about Alex Cook, who's definitely stepped up and become uh, an emotional vocal leader for the defense, uh, did not have a good game. Uh, Julius Irvin, Cam Fabriculanen, uh, all got picked on in coverage. I think it, the the stat was just plays where they were the, the primary defenders, those three, the uh, – quarterbacks the dtr went like 15 for 15 throwing at them uh watching this is it is it technical stuff is it stuff that these individuals can do differently is it physical are they not up to these jobs or is there some kind of schematic fix that can make this work a little bit better like if you're approaching this from your uh coaching perspective just getting torched and it's clearly reached a crisis point now where it's costing games what how do you go about trying to fix it it's pretty tough given the hand we were dealt heading into this game where we, you know, I think everybody understood that we were thin uh, at DB, particularly at corner. You know, we had uh, Perryman coming back, but was still kind of dinged up. Uh, Powell's out. Turner, um, Asa Turner uh, was also unavailable for this game. So that right there is, you know, 60% of your DBs are either out or, you know, maybe just returning from injury and still not a hundred percent. So that's kind of tough. And then the folks that we asked to step up were either inexperienced or playing out of position, right? Uh, you look at uh, Cook and Irvin, who you kind of pointed out, no pun intended, got cooked by yeah. uh, folks like uh, the wide receiver Bobo. I mean, a number of really impressive plays against them when they were in coverage. Cook and Irvin are largely safeties up until this point. Cook is a safety. Uh, and Julius Irvin was pressed into uh, duty at cornerback a couple weeks ago. And I, I've made comments before in some of the articles that I've written where there is a uh, significant technique difference and uh, when it comes to playing coverage as a corner versus playing coverage as a safety, you're playing with a different 
um, pace of the game, right? When you're right up in a receiver's face as a corner, you know, the game comes much quicker to you, right? You have less time to react and adjust in coverage like that. And it's a different skill set a little bit. And so, you know, I don't entirely blame them for being put in those situations, at least Irvin, right, playing at corner. But it is it is tough when you get uh, those kinds of one-on-one coverage matchups between, a you know, a really solid receiver in Bobo and, you know, more safety types at DB. Um, and and that's, that's a byproduct of our scheme where, you know, we've looked pretty good thus far in coverage playing in this new quarters heavy scheme where there, there is a little bit more being asked uh, of the safeties as far as playing individual coverage. But most of these guys, you know, if they do have experience, isn't experienced within that type of a, a scheme and don't really have that well-rounded skill set to execute quite as well. So that was already going to be pretty tough. Um, the second part of that is up until this point, we've been successful because our pressure from the front seven, let's just say front six or whatever, has been really effective in the games where our DBs, you know, held the passing game to uh, relatively few yards, right? I mean, we saw, we kind of have seen the progression of all that throughout the season where first game up, there was a little bit of concern about our DBs because uh, Kent State's quarterback was so uh, elusive and made those, uh, you know, Houdini plays escaping pressure and then throwing the ball downfield uh, very effectively. And, you know, getting that type of pressure or getting more pressure similar to uh, two weeks ago when we played Stanford, where we were just, you know, constantly in Tanner McKee's face, that really helps, you know, um, keep the lid on their passing attack, right? So uh, DTR didn't have too many uh, plays where he really had to, you know, be a Houdini kind of escape artist. But the the lack of pressure was kind of the downfall here because it it covers up so many issues on the back end. Um, I think while DTR didn't have to escape pressure, it was because we we really didn't bring a whole lot of pressure. We were really worried about his his ability to pick up yards in the ground, and so we kept a linebacker uh, as a QB spy for a, a healthy number of plays, and that takes one body away from coverage or pressure. And so we that kind of dynamic when facing offenses down the line um, should change. DTR is probably the most athletic um elusive quarterback that we're going to play moving forward so i'd expect the defensive staff to kind of readjust their approach and uh probably be a little bit more aggressive with the pressure and and maybe not worry about uh keeping in the qb spy on on quite as many plays yeah that's an interesting point and you're right that i was expecting dtr's feet to be more of a problem he he didn't really have that many opportunities to get out of the pocket and run it happened but it wasn't like an every down type of thing and so to some extent the spy was effective but I would also say that he wasn't getting out of the pocket and running because before he had to leave the pocket he was finding Jake Bobo or somebody else with nobody within five yards of him so there's another layer of it as well uh it it is tough and you mentioned uh, Turner and Powell being out it wasn't like those guys were 
covering themselves in glory when they were healthy either. Not that, you know, it, it helps to be missing players, obviously, but I, I don't think we can just say like the cavalry's coming where it's all going to be better. As soon as these guys get back, get back into the lineup, you have to kind of hope for mechanical improvements, better communication, getting more experience, more reps in this system. The performance starts to get better, but it is, I mean, they are, we have lost so much depth at cornerback from where we were last year. Uh, the top three cornerbacks on the team are all gone. Um, we don't know where Jacoby Covington would have fallen on that depth chart, but he'd probably at least have seen some uh, run at this point if he hadn't left the program uh, ahead of a couple of converted safeties. But it will be uh, an ongoing issue, and it, we'll have to talk about it a little bit later because we may not have an opponent who's well-equipped to take advantage of it this week, but it is going to happen as the year goes on. Before we move off of the UCLA game, I, I just wanted to get your take on how good UCLA really is. Did we catch them on a good day? Is it this like when a pretty good team is clicking at its best? Or do you think this combination offensively, kind of three-headed monster of Thompson Robinson, Charbonnet, and Jake Bobo is the kind of like triplets offensively that can put them legitimately into contention for the conference title? That's that's tough. I think it's I think it's both. I think that they're certainly talented enough at those respective positions to maybe at least contend for a conference title appearance, title game appearance. Um, DTR played lights out against us. And if he continues to play at that level as a passer while still having, you know, his, you know, noted, mobility and athleticism I, I think that by itself will elevate UCLA's ceiling to maybe you know 10 wins or something like that you know on a optimistic side um or, or maybe even higher who's to say I think we all understood that UCLA was talented at those key positions Charbonnet looked excellent Bobo was put in good in good situations to make plays against our secondary. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a sign that uh, the scheme is still there and that while Chip Kelly's offense might not be quite as, you know, cutting edge and innovative as it was maybe 10 years ago, he's still a great offensive mind and, and will put his players in a, in a position to succeed. Um, UCLA's defense also looked a lot better than I was kind of expecting. You know, I was talking to a couple of buddies and we we're trying to make uh, game predictions right before the, uh, the UCLA game. And I, my prediction was 37-31 UW, which, you know, not super far off from the final score overall. You know, obviously I picked UW to win, but, you know, 31 points is – it's a lot of points in general. That's a strong offense. And so I think, you know, my buddies also all predicted 30 point games out of the UCLA offense. And so, you know, seeing them play at that level while also having their defense make just enough plays to kind of turn the tide, um, particularly in coverage where we weren't, you know, where they hadn't shown lockdown defense is a good sign for their overall um chances at making a title run there um one one quick point on their defense um and i was kind of looking at the pff grades uh for their players prior to writing my defensive preview for them last week is that their defense overall 
not great at coverage, but they were really good at tackling. And that's something that I think was the difference between our defense and their defense. If both, both of our secondaries are going to give up receptions, their defense's ability to at least get guys on the ground and not give up those explosive ca- uh, plays after the catch really kind of took the wind out of our offensive sails on some of those underneath passing th- passing concepts, mesh, and, and the like. Um, we also ran a number of uh, bubble screen RPOs to our tight ends that, you know, were somewhat effective at, you know, keeping the offense, you know, in rhythm, but, you know, really didn't let our athletes take over the game, right? They were they were tackled for a short gain, and, and that was it, whereas our tackling was abysmal on a number of plays. So um, I think they do the fundamentals good enough to – let their offense kind of take over games and, and that'll take you pretty far in a PAC 12 South division that uh, outside of USC and Utah is, is eminently beatable. Yeah, that is a, I think that's a fair assessment. I, and I said a similar thing about DTR last week, talking to Gabby as we were previewing the game that you look at his year over year stats and he's, this is his fifth year with the program and he's been pretty steady every year with his numbers you know, something like a two to one touchdown interception ratio, maybe slightly better completion percentages in the mid sixties. And then this year it jumps out. He's like in the high seventies and completions and came into the game with eight to one touchdowns and interceptions. And I said, you know, if this is what he's done so far against basically FCS competition is uh, indicative of a new baseline for him, then yes, this is an extremely good team, but I was betting against that being indicative of a new level of skill, uh, and and he played like that this week. And if he keeps doing that, I think you're right. That really raises the ceiling for the team as a whole. And yeah, I like you said, I think when we were predicting the game, we all expected a high scoring game. And I kind of inverted the what was actually the outcome. I thought the Husky defense would be the one to make those one or two key plays to, you know, get a get the big stop or get the force a turnover instead it went the other way and that ended up deciding the game so uh, let's uh, stop talking about this game it was rough it was depressing hopefully the we learned something from it and we can scheme around it we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk about arizona state thanks for sticking with us the huskies are on the road again this week headed down to tempe uh, we talked earlier in the podcast about some of the strangeness in uh, road games and tough environments. This one is a whole different type of tough, tough environment. It's like physically a tough environment. How much is it going to matter that the forecast for this game is for 90 plus degrees at game time? And are we going to get to see somebody uh, on the sideline holding a giant oversized thermometer to show us the true temperature on the field? If I was the broadcast crew, I would 100% have that oversized thermometer there. Um, but yes, I, to your first question, he is no joke um, as far as, you know, kind of affecting the game. Um, you know, I, I kind of grew up in, in warm climates. Uh, it was more humidity than pure heat like it will be down in Tempe. But it, it definitely has an effect, especially later on in the game. And it really saps your energy as you're just sitting, you know, under the baking sun and you know it'll be tough i would not be surprised to see a number of our guys start getting cramps throughout the game and just because we're not used to those types of uh 
game time environments, right? I mean, Pacific Northwest, nice and cool for the most part. We've had a lot of, you know, later kickoffs where it, it's borderline cold while they're playing. And so just that lack of familiarity and how to, you know, deal with that. I mean, I'm sure, you know, the whole staff is going to be telling players to, you know, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate well ahead of the game. But until you're doing that, or until you're in that environment or have, you know, experienced playing in that environment, you know, they're not, they're not always going to be ready for it. And so uh, I, I think it'll be a game where we're going to want to rotate a lot of bodies in at almost every single position and depth will be important where, you know, we can kind of lean on it and at positions where we can't lean on it. Well, that, that might be uh, something to look out for. Yeah, it's a great point. Hopefully they're hydrating now, just like everybody's living on IVs all week just to get as hydrated as possible. I, if we can get past the heat, the offensive matchup is pretty favorable. A uh, couple stats that were telling to me, uh, UW so far this season is 11th in success rate uh, in the passing game, meaning you know the amount of yardage gained relative to the down and distance in passing uh, situations. Arizona State's defense in that same metric rates 128th in the country. So it's a very favorable matchup. And Arizona State doesn't defend the run very well. They're okay at it. They're middle of the pack. Uh, but this seems like an especially good week, given those passing rates, rates for Penix and the receivers. Arizona State's given up 30 plus points to every FBS team they've played so far and haven't scored 30 yet. And that includes their loss to Eastern Michigan, who's, you know, perennial bottom dweller. How do you see UW offense uh, matching up here? It kind of looks like an opportunity to have a field day. Do you think that's realistic given the conditions we're looking at, or uh, should we temper expectations a little bit? See, I, I, everything in me wants to say that, you know, we should see, you know, a score in the forties for the Husky offense, but part of me, you know, in the back of my head, something, just wants to temper expectations a little bit. Um, you know, you, you kind of threw out how, you know, poorly uh, ASU's defense has been, you know, based on some of the statistics and analytics thus far this season. But I was, I was kind of taking a look at their schedule and performances, at least on paper uh, so far this season. And they've had a murderer's row for the most part um, to start the season. I mean, they played – a solid Oklahoma state team that I believe is in the top 15 right now, if not top 10, they played USC and Utah. And so it, you know, that might skew some of that. I know that uh, there's been a lot of turmoil down there in that program, but there is a, still a healthy amount of talent in, in the first string that could pose some problems to our defense or excuse me, to our offense. So it's kind of tough to tell. I mean, you know, I, I did watch uh, a good amount of their game last week against USC. And up until the very end, uh, they were right there in that game. I think it was uh, maybe a one-possession game up until about midway through the fourth quarter or early in the fourth quarter. And so they, they hung around. Um, you know, if, if we're going to take USC, USC's offense as kind of the gold standard in the conference right now. Um you know, that's that that might be cause for some concern as far as uh, our offensive prospects right there. I think we all understand that we have 
good talent or good scheme and you know we have a a path to really put up some points but you know i i'm i'm kind of expecting somewhere in the mid 30s uh for our offense yeah i think that's reasonable i think that's probably where i would land to if i wanted to really like dumb it down a little bit i'd probably say looks like a team we should score 40 on i'm going to take away a touchdown for it being on the road and maybe another field goal for the uh, conditions and and settle somewhere in the low 30s. Uh, hopefully that's enough. Uh, let's talk a little bit about whether it's enough. The Arizona State offense, it's a little bit more competent, or at least it has been compared to the defense, especially on the ground. Emory Jones is a Florida transfer at quarterback, definitely a run first quarterback. They've thrown with him a little bit more than they did uh, with uh, Jaden Daniels over the last couple of years, but it's still a, a very run heavy scheme. And they, they rank near the top of the country in their uh, percentage of run plays that they're calling. And then the other transfer who's probably been even more effective than Jones is Xavier Valade, uh, the running back who came from Wyoming, getting almost a hundred yards a game against what you mentioned is a very uh, challenging schedule so far. The UW run defense has been pretty much average so far this year. It's been the pass defense, as we talked about, that's been the bigger problem. I, I think about what do we need to do to stuff the run? You mentioned <laughs> the need to rotate guys through. I'm sure this is going to apply to their offensive line as well. But, man, I think about somebody like Ulumo Ale trying to you know get out there 330 pounds or whatever he is now in 94-degree heat. That's going to be a challenge. I, I know we've kind of settled on. Uh, Fatui Tuatele is the the number two defensive tackle, but we're going to need all hands on deck on that defensive line this week. Uh, anything else uh, we can do defensively that will get us better luck than what we did last week? Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that before jumping on the pod. Um, kind of like what I mentioned, I I have a feeling that the defensive staff is going to want to kind of reset their their game plan a little bit, get back to their roots and maybe, you know, Emory Jones, solid athlete. Um, he hasn't really hurt anybody just yet on the ground with his feet. Um, but he, he is kind of a more mobile quarterback, but I, I think that we're going to want to kind of reverse course from this past week and focus on pressure, um, especially with kind of the performance of the DBs last week and having that game plan out there for other offenses to kind of co-op some ideas, you know, using motion to manipulate our safeties, using some of the stack releases that Bobo, uh, you know, got uh, used to kind of get that one-on-one with one of our safeties and and things like that. Um, So that's going to be kind of a concern there if we don't get pressure to kind of cover up some of those uh, deficiencies right now. Um, I think we're going to bring a lot more pressure with the linebackers, maybe uh, some more stunts up front and kind of force Emory Jones to make those quick hitting hot route passes and, and more dink and dunk rather than just running wild or, uh, you know, sitting back with time because any quarterback, regardless of, you know, their overall passing abilities or perceived passing abilities. If you give them all day, they will find somebody open. You know, it's, it's kind of like pass protection where you, you know, generally you say, ah, three and a half seconds, you know, for pass protection, anything after that, you know, that's on the quarterback and, you know, kind of similarly DBs, 
three and a half seconds of quality coverage. Um, anything after that, if they're beat, then that's the pressure not getting there. And uh, with our DBs, it might be a little bit less than three and a half seconds. So uh, I, I think I think a game plan that the staff will consider is is kind of dialing up some more of the pressure that we had seen uh, against Stanford. Yeah, I think that's hopefully we can do that. It's not going to be easy to get pressure on Jones, but even if he is running the ball more often, uh, I think the idea of trying to make him move around and, and collapse the pocket and make him uncomfortable probably makes sense. One kind of sub storyline to watch is the field position game. We've been a really good field position team this year, 19th in net field starting field position. And Arizona state has been very bad. 113th. Uh, we we had been even better before the UCLA game, and we saw the impact that it has to have to start deeper in your own territory. So hopefully that's something that you know, you can get an extra five or 10 yards per possession by doing that over the course of the game. That really adds up. It's like, you know, tallying an extra five or 10 first downs by the end of the game. Uh, and so we'll see how that plays out, but it's a trend. It's another data point. Uh, the line on this game is Huskies are favored by 14. Uh, do you think that's too high? What would you pick if you were pick, had to pick over under a 14 point win? Or are you, are you even picking the Huskies? I'm, I'm definitely, you know, picking the Huskies. You know, I will almost certainly pick the Huskies against, you know, the field in the Pac-12. But kind of thinking about that, I my score prediction this week, I have a feeling – 37-23. It'll be a push uh, against the spread, but I think the over will hit. That's pretty uh, uh, ballsy to pick the actual <laughs> push. To just like, I'm taking an actual push. Um, um, part part it, of that was like, uh, you know, four touchdowns from our offense. That feels about right. We still have some issues that are kind of lingering in the red zone, so... I feel like we'll we'll put up the yardage, but maybe not convert all of them for, for touchdowns. So four touchdowns, maybe three field goals. You know, seven possessions. You know, seven possessions ending in in scores. Yeah, that feels about right to me. Uh, the numbers sound reasonable to me. I'm probably not going to take the Huskies uh, to cover in this one. Uh, here's a little bit of series history, and this was shocking to me when I started looking into it. The Huskies have lost 12 out of the last 14 times they've played Arizona State. That's not uh, just in Tempe. They haven't won in Tempe since 2001. They've lost their last seven games, one, two, three, four, eight games in Tempe. Some of these games, I started thinking about this because I was thinking about how many incredibly frustrating losses there had been uh, that happened. Like there was the Jake Locker uh, looked like they had the game won and they gave up basically a Hail Mary 50 yard uh, touchdown pass with no time left on the clock. I, that would have been in, I think, 2009 ish. There was uh, the the year where it looked like Sark, I think 2013, had them on the right track, uh, got out to an early lead and then gave up like 29 straight points and lost 53 to 24. Is they'd only lost to like two top five teams at that point. Uh, it just over and over and over. Uh, there was a, a 17 nothing lead, uh, in 2015 that turned into a 27 17 loss. Just every time the Huskies play in uh, Tempe, it goes very poorly. And the last one was the 13 to seven loss when maybe Jake Browning's worst ever start, 
the offense was just completely useless when the dogs were all the way up to number five in the country and couldn't do it couldn't do a thing against that defense so it scares me i mean there's a lot of history going against us uh going to this game i i still think i mean arizona state fired herm edwards for a reason this team is dysfunctional it's not all about us and it's not magic like this is a, a good husky team should be able to win but I, it's hard for me to imagine all this history and we're just going to write it off for a three touchdown win or something like that Let's end uh, our, our football talk on a bit of a happier note. Do a little whip around the Pac-12 where we're not just talking about brutally devastating history. Uh, the I think maybe the most impressive win of the week was Utah beating Oregon State by 26, which looked like a possibly close game going in. Uh, despite the loss in the swamp, the Utes look like really, really good team in the Pac-12. It's between them and U- U- USC right now at the top of the conference. Which team would you take right now, head to head, if you if you were picking a Pac-12 title game between USC and Utah? Utah all the way, and Just I feel based on, strongly about that one. Based on USC's questionable defense, uh, I, I yes, a um, couple of different things. A yes, uh, the defense is a question. I think Utah overall is just a more complete team. Um, they don't. They might not have all the star power, and I think they just recently lost. Um, I can't pronounce his name worth a lick, but their tight end, their star tight end Keithy. for the season is out. Yes, yeah. so that hurts a little bit. But Utah's always consistently solid in the trenches, which is uh, something that USC had some question marks on. And and while they've been pretty solid so far, you know, kind of playing above expectations. Um, I, I still will give the the edge to Utah in that hypothetical scenario. Um, Phillips, I believe, is their cornerback, mm-hmm. their star cornerback. Had a great game last week. I think he had like three picks or something like that and pick six. And so th- their early, you know, season opening loss to Florida has shown to be more of an aberration. They've they've really played well. USC has also played well, but you know have had some fits and starts during games, you know, but then eventually went on to win them. So I think just solid, consistent coaching, uh, strong culture and, you know, well-developed depth of talent and all of that, uh, you know, all kind of in place for Utah. I, I take them over USC right now. I think that makes sense. I'm a little, you know, it's hard not to, we've seen one of these teams lose. We haven't seen the other one lose. But when they the common opponents like Oregon State as a common opponent look like night and day, and Utah has looked so good after that Florida game, it's kind of a shame that they're. It's going to be really tough for them to overcome that hump and get back into the college football playoff conversation. Because if they had pulled that one out, they'd probably be right ranked, you know, sixth or something right now, and very much in the oh, thick of it. Sure. Uh, and it would be really fun to kind of have that on the back burner going through the Pac-12 season, thinking about Utah, USC as these two big, really tough programs vying for a spot uh, with the conference kind of resurgent, even as one of them is on their way out. Uh, the other end of the conference is Colorado, which is, God, can it's I know Arizona was really, really bad last year, but I don't remember a Pac-12 team quite this hopeless. And they failed. They fired Carl Durrell after the really horrific start. Give me some thoughts on who you think should take over or who would be a good candidate to take over. And 
you know, with that in mind, do you think Colorado even still has the upside of being a perennial top 25 program? I'll, I'll start with the second one, the second part of your question first. It's tough for me to, to kind of look at the program big picture and, and really see a, an easy path for them to get back into like a perennial top 25 position. Um, it's been such a long time since they've been that type of program that it it take a real special program building type of head coach to to kind of get them back there. You know, I I don't want to you know buy in too much into the Ari Wasserman stars matters kind of a thing, but he he does have a good point. Um, you know, Ari Wasserman from the Athletic who famously rags on UW. But he didn't invent stars matter. He just co-opted it and says it. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And, and but it's a it true negatively. Point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he 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 one of his um frequent lines is is that it's all about geography. And while Colorado, you know, isn't uh you know, they're not devoid of talent, you know, they're not Idaho, for example, or something like that. But it's it, it's tough because they're stuck kind of in this, you know, no man's land of no real hotbed close for them to really draw talent from as like the go-to program. You know, I mean, there's there's always been, you know, a healthy amount of talent coming out of Colorado and uh, Denver and the surrounding areas. But, um, you know, it, it's going to be an uphill battle to kind of build that roster into – a top 25, you know, type of program. And there's not too many other resources for them to lean on, you know. Sure, they won a national championship, oh, you know, coming up on 30 years ago. Yeah. Not unlike us. Um, <laughs> but but it's, it's the lack of consistent, you know, uh, performances in between that kind of have – let their brand kind of erode over time and they're not they're not really a draw right um outside of their uh one really good season under Mike McIntyre where they mm-hmm. got to the Pac-12 championship game um they, they really haven't had any any uh you know individual seasons recently to kind of hang their hat on and, and be like see this is what we could do if we if we just had you Mr. Five Star um but you know with that being said um, th- there are a number of candidates out there that might be intriguing um, for Colorado. And, uh, you know, if, if they can gather up enough money, might be able to be an interesting option for some of these guys. Um, I've heard, you know, names like uh, Bronco Mendenhall get tossed around, the former BYU and UVA head coach. Um, he has ties to the West Coast or or the Mountain region from his time at at BYU and uh, he's, he's a good coach. Uh, you know, I had tossed his name out there as a dark horse person that we should at least take a look at uh, when our head coaching position was open. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a fan of his and, and his uh, resume, but uh, yeah, I, I had tossed a name out there that uh, I don't know how realistic it is or, or whatever, but uh, Eric Bienemy, um is a Colorado Buffalo alum and uh, was a member of some of their good uh, teams in the nineties. And uh, he actually coached there for 
two different stints, I believe. He was an offensive coordinator there prior to going to Kansas City and becoming a uh, a popular uh, name for a lot of NFL head coaching vacancies. Um, I We talked about it in our writer's chat about how, oh, you know, he's been kind of waiting – you know, uh, being selective in, in the head coaching vacancies at the NFL level that he's really made a push for and it hasn't really panned out. And it's been a couple of years now of that. So maybe he wants to take the plunge as alma mater or something like that. I know he has some off-field concerns um, that I am hadn't realized, but, uh, you know, that, that might be a name to kind of, you know, keep in the back of your head as the head coaching search kind of develops. Yeah, I, I think he would be an exciting kind of higher risk option. Uh, but, you know, if it hits, it probably hits pretty big. I like Mendenhall a lot. I think he's really talented. If you want to, you know, kind of stay in that BYU family, I saw somebody mention Kalani Sataki, although I don't know if it would be very easy to pry him away from BYU right now as they're headed toward uh, the Big 12 anyway. I don't know if this is that much more appealing of a job. Uh, and then somebody I saw mentioned Gary Patterson as well, former TCU coach who I've always had a lot of respect for. Uh, those would be kind of like stabilizing force type coaches. It's kind of you, you mentioned the the parallels with the Huskies history, like Bill McCartney was their coach in the 80s and early 90s who won the national title. Probably not quite as uh, successful as Don James, but kind of their Don James. They had Rick Neuheisel after that. He's probably like the next most successful guy. There's another parallel. Uh, Gary Barnett won in the early 2000s, but was cheating like crazy. And since then, it's just been just over. Like the the winning percentages of the coaches they've had since then are uh, 327 for Dan Hawkins, 160 for John Embry, 405 for Mike McIntyre. And that's with that one great season you mentioned, 417 for Mel Tucker and 348 for Carl Durrell. Just like nobody. And this is counting is a, you know, always a power five conference team that's piling up their uh, wins in non-conference. It's even worse if you look at their conference record. Uh, it just really, really bad. So, there, you know, maybe you could see this as being something like their Willingham low point, but it's not just a Willingham. It's like a su- succession of Willinghams, Willing willing High, Willing Who. Uh, and it's just not, <laughs> it has not gone well. Uh, and so, you know, maybe they're not in a position to hire their version of Chris Peterson or something, and they just need a, uh, Steve Sarkeesian to get them back to respectability. Uh, so we'll see if that's possible. I mean, it's not going to be easy, uh, but they need to at least get uh, somebody who can stem the tide because right now they're pretty much undoubtedly the worst power five team in the country. And even if they don't have the geography to be, uh, you know, the national champion contender that they once were, they also should be better than Kansas, and they're a lot worse than Kansas right now. So, oh my, why? And they're worse than everybody. They're worse than Vanderbilt, Duke, and Northwestern, and you know every other team that's usually a a laughing stock of a Power Five FBS team. Well, that's kind of sad to think about. I like Colorado. Boulder's a cool town. They have a cool stadium. I, I like Ralphie, but hopefully they'll get it turned around. Let's uh, stop there. Let's go into our recommendations and plugs. Do you have anything you want to recommend from the non-football uh, world of entertainment and life? Well, you got me again here. Andrew. Well, give um, us an update on the Lincoln links failing non-football. At least that's a different <laughs> version of football. Yes. Exciting things going on this week uh, or coming up, I believe. It's uh, 
Lincoln Lynx versus uh, the Ingram Rams this week Friday for uh, what has been dubbed Battle for the Sound in the Metro League. Top two teams tied atop mm. the Metro League standings, undefeated in league play. Uh, Ingram, much, much better than previous seasons. Um, I think their average margin of victory is somewhere in the low to mid-30s. So they've been stomping teams uh, so far. Lincoln, not quite as good as last year. Um, you know, had a, a number of one-possession games thus far this season or or maybe, you know, 10-point victories. Uh, not quite as dominant as last year, despite returning a lot of the same starters. So it'll be a, it'll be a tough game. Um, I'm still confident in our uh, team's grittiness and, and desire to win. Uh, 4.30 kickoff at... Nathan Hale High School uh, up here in North Seattle. So uh, I'll be there. I'll be calling the game uh, from atop the press box. And uh, anybody in the area want to stop by, feel free. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, that's got to be a pretty rare thing that it's two teams whose nickname is also within the school's name. Like Ram is in Ingram and Link is in Link's Lincoln. Maybe not a stat that's actually <laughs> tracked anywhere, uh, but it, it is true. That's uh, the value you bring to this podcast yeah, right yeah. there. <laughs> I, I'm seeing words within other words. I'm going to recommend a comedy special watched over the weekend. Nick Kroll has a new stand-up special on Netflix called uh, Little Big Boy. Nick Kroll, people probably know. He was in the league. He's been in a million other things. He's very recognizable and very funny. He has a, the show Big Mouth on Netflix as well. It's an animated show that he made. Extremely funny guy, and it's a good stand-up special. He's like more of a, a – not so much a joke teller as like a storyteller and a lot of physical comedy – but still highly enjoyable, recommended. I think most people would enjoy it. It's, it's pretty relatable. Um, anything else you want to uh, touch on before we sign off? Nope. Uh, you let me ran, ramble on here long enough, I think. Uh, I'm all good over here. Good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Coach, again uh, for being with us this week. Next week, maybe Gabe will be back. If not, I'm going to put in a call to Cody Pickett. We'll see if we can get him here. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and go dogs. Go dogs.